Well, give me a show of hands. How many of you guys like to do puzzles? That's interesting. Good to know. Good to know. How many of you think I like to do puzzles? <laughs> what are the laughs about? I don't like to do puzzles. I, I'm not a detailed-oriented person. Uh, Sherry likes to do puzzles. And uh, I think she wishes that we'd sit down together and, as a family, do puzzles. Um, but for me, it's a little bit like cleaning out the closet. I like when it's done. I really don't want to do it. Uh, I like the finished product. I hate the process. I'm not a process-oriented person. Regardless of whether I'm right about the nature of puzzling, that is, that it's a cleaning out the closet type, ordering detailed experience, we can learn something about puzzle completion that would help us in the book of Revelation know how to handle it well. Everyone knows the first thing you do when putting a puzzle together is you look at that big picture of the completed puzzle that's conveniently offered on the box top, right? You don't begin a puzzle by dumping out the pieces, grabbing one random piece, and then going piece to piece to piece until you find a match for the first random piece that you grabbed, right? Hopefully no one does that. Can you imagine how time-consuming that would be? How inefficient that would be? I'm going to give you an example of how this might help us, up, help us in reading Revelation and understanding what's going on there, figuring out what's going on there. What if we were to start this series in the book of Revelation with a deep dive into the meaning and significance of locusts? which are mentioned in chapter 9. That would be like randomly dumping all the pieces out, grabbing the first piece you can reach, and then fitting, trying to fit every piece to that piece before moving to the second piece. Here's the verse from Revelation chapter 9. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Horse-like locusts with crowns on their heads and human faces. What might that be? How are we to understand this? Do these represent something? What are the crowns about? Are they real? Are they symbolic? Why do they have faces? Are they having the Jeff Goldblum experience of the movie The Fly? Are we to expect that humans have now been transformed into locusts? Can you imagine grabbing one random piece and then working that piece over? until you moved on to the next piece. The first step in putting a puzzle together is to spend some time looking at the big picture and then you set that box top out so that everybody that's working on the puzzle can look at it, the big picture, and get a sense of where we're headed. Here's the big picture in the book of Revelation. God rules history and is bringing it to culmination for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the big picture. Which means that all the other individual pieces will contribute to this overall image to some degree, in some fashion. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, interestingly, and God the Son are working together. They're steering it. God's steering history in such a way that God the Son is glorified at the end of time. In fact, in today's passage, it's no small matter, and we shouldn't blow by it, that when John has today's vision, he's in, he's in the Spirit, he says. 
There's lots of debate about what that means. We'll set the debate about aside and just note the fact it's the Spirit in the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's work that helps him see the Son glorified. We're here this morning because we want to see the Son glorified. We want to see God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son work together in history to care for us, to care for our loved ones, to care for the community in which we live, this county of DuPage, the globe. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are working together to bring history to a culmination, at which time God the Son will be glorified. That's step one, big picture. Set the box top out so we can see it. Work towards that end. What's the second step? The second step in puzzle completion. Let's see if we're all on the same page. Second step in puzzle completion. The border. Good job. The edge, right? The frame. Again, you don't start by working in the middle of a puzzle with random pieces. You start on the edge because those pieces have those flat sides. They make it somewhat idiot-proof. They help the non-detailed, non-process-oriented people. You start there because the frame of the picture serves as a boundary in which, in which all other pieces fit. Completing the frame allows you to work in an orderly fashion, fitting things in like locusts. So if the big picture of the book of Revelation is the glory of Christ at the end of time, what frames our understanding of all the events that are going to be coming together? Another way to ask the same question might be, what's the context of the book, of the letter? And the answer is the church. The frame within which all the pieces of the book come together, or the context of this letter is two and through and for the church. Here's how I would say it, big picture and frame. God rules history. He rules over all of history and is bringing it to a culmination for the glory of Christ in and through and for the good of the church. And I'll define the church a little bit later, give it greater specificity. Folks, what do we think is going on here? I mean, this morning... What do we think is going on here? I know suburbanites well enough to know none of us wants to waste our time. We're a highly efficient, highly credentialed, get-it-done people. That's suburbia. So you show up at 9 o'clock and you stay till 10.01, 10.02. <laughs> Why? What do you think is going on here? Is this a civic gathering? Is this a religious exercise? Is this moral education? Is this a park district type program? Or is this the group, or one faction, one part of the group for which God is moving history to a close for their good. Is this a supernatural gathering? If you haven't already opened to Revelation, first chapter in your copy of the scripture, it's the last book of the Bible, makes it relatively easy to find or dial it up on your phone. Follow along as I make a case that God's bringing 
glory to Christ in and through and for the good of the church. And because the church matters to God, it will matter to his people. John writes in verse 9 of chapter 1, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Suffering's ours in Jesus. Kingdom's ours in Jesus. Patient endurance are ours in Jesus. There's so much to preach on here. I need to move on. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me this loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. John is directed by a trumpet-like voice and what he saw to write what he saw. So again, we have revelation is God's idea. We'll learn in a minute this voice is Jesus. Jesus directs John to write it down. Moses, uh, the finger of God actually inscribed the first set of 10 commandments. Revelation is God's idea. Scripture is God's idea. He's working through humanity to produce, to make himself known. He said, send it to the seven churches. That's the context. That's the frame. That's the, the edge. The seven churches are on the screen, modern-day Turkey. Last week, I went out of my way to say that because it's addressed to these seven churches, the meaning of the letter cannot mean for us today, 21 centuries later, 20 centuries later, that was written around 90 A.D., can't mean for us 20 centuries later what it couldn't have meant for them. It's, it's written to a specific people, an audience, a congregation, seven of them. It's written for us without a doubt. God had in mind the church spread out through over all the ages. But it's written to them. Now, as we think of the church as the frame of the picture, it's interesting that John notes that he heard this voice, saw this vision on the Lord's day. And he was in the spirit. This is interesting for a number of reasons. First, because we know that the Lord's Day was named because, so named because it was the day on which Christ was raised. He was raised on the first day of the week, the Sunday. John interestingly notes it was the Lord's Day. It was a Sunday in which he saw this vision. Many scholars believe that this reference to the Lord's Day is that day set aside from the earliest times of Christianity for the, the worship, the adoration, of the Savior. And then John says something interesting. It was the Lord's day, and I was in the Spirit. It's most likely a reference to John being in a worship service, a gathering of God's people. We're gathered today on the Lord's day in the Spirit. Again, I'll, I'll put to you, what do we think is going on here? How do we view this gathering? The Spirit's presence here this morning, ministering to us, ministering through us to one another, caring for us, opening our minds. This is how we pray every Sunday morning. Open our minds, open our hearts to the truths of Scripture. Patmos is an island off the coast of Turkey. We have a little picture here for you. It's just 45 miles southwest of the ancient city of Ephesus. So the little circles there on the mainland of Turkey are the, the churches and their, their areas of influence. And then off the coast there is Patmos, bottom left corner. 
Patmos was used by Rome as a place to hold those people that were deemed a threat to Roman power, those that were socially disruptive. That's what John means when he writes that because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos. What is, what's he mean by that? He means that he'd been sent there because he was socially disruptive. He was deemed a threat to Roman authority. The message that Jesus is Lord was in direct contradiction to Caesar's claim to be Lord. So let's, let's get rid of John. Let's put him out to sea. Of course, John would not have been the only person on this island. In fact, we know that, this is interesting, there was a Greek gymnasium on the island. There was a population on the island. There was a temple for the worship of Artemis, the Greek god of fertility on the island. So it's not hard to believe that a group of believers, however few they might have been, would be gathering on the Lord's Day, coming together under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's no small matter that John says, I was on Patmos, but I was in the Spirit. I was on Patmos, but I was in the Spirit. I think this could minister to many of us today. John was imprisoned for his faith, exiled to a desolate place, held against his will on Patmos, but he was in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit was with him, caring for him, even in his suffering. The Spirit of God was still at work in him. The Spirit of God was still available to him. The Spirit of God was comforting him. The Spirit of God was growing him. The Spirit of God was opening him to the knowledge of the Savior. Which means that even as we suffer, even as we endure, we can be on Patmos and we can be in the Spirit. This is good news. Church, this means that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad the suffering, the Spirit is God, ha- never leaves us or forsakes us. How easy it might have been, I won't ask for a show of hands here, how easy it might have been for John to wake up on the Lord's Day in his cave. He didn't have fancy digs on the island. Imagine him waking up under his little shack or in his cave and saying, God's abandoned me, I'm not going to worship today. It's not uncommon. We, the wealthiest church in the history of the world, how many of us wake up on Sunday morning and go, "Mm, how do I feel? Which way is the wind blowing? Will I go to church or not? Well, God's not been real good to me this week. I... How many of us stay home from the gathering of God's people when the going gets tough in life or when there's a Bears game on? When the very thing that we most deeply need and long for is waiting for us among the people of God, the Spirit. I want to encourage you during this gathering of God's people on this Lord's Day, the Spirit's present to care for you. At the end of the service, uh, there'll be a couple down here, uh, Glenn and Janiel Agate, they'd love to pray with you. We'll close the service with a couple songs. If you have a prayer need, we all have prayer needs. If you want prayer for the need that you have, <laughs> they'd love to pray with you.
And if we're correct in thinking about John, that he received this revelation during a worship service, it shouldn't surprise us that in the very next scene, as John turns to see who's speaking to him, we find Jesus standing among the churches, which are pictured as lampstands. He's, it's the Lord's day. He's in the Spirit, and he sees Christ glorified among, with, in the church. What do we think is going on here this morning, folks? Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Just means like a human, but not, <laughs> but actually fully God. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like white, like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like blazing fire. His feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice like the sound of rushing waters in his right hand. Seven stars held, coming out of his mouth, a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This is a glorious description of Christ glorified, our Savior. We'll break it down for you a little bit. Like the Son of Man, this is a confirmation. John's helping us understand that this is, this is the glorified Savior which Daniel saw in his vision 500 years earlier. Here's Daniel's record. In my vision, and Daniel gives this, has this vision while in exile, it shouldn't be missed on us, he's in, he's uh, among Babylon, he's in Babylon, and he gets this vision by the Spirit's power. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that is God the Father, was led into his presence, given authority, glory, sovereign power, all nations and peoples, every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Should sound familiar to us if you were here last week. Chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus coming on the clouds. Chapter 1, verse 5, ruler of the kings of the earth, John says. Jesus clearly fulfills, confirms that he's the fulfillment of Daniel's vision some 500 years earlier in Babylon. Next is the description of Jesus having eyes like fire, feet like bronze, voice like rushing water, face shining like the sun. Each of these images found in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. They point to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy given by Daniel, envisioned by Ezekiel. God sending his Messiah. Make no mistake, the earliest Christians understood that they were heirs of the Old Testament prophecies and promises of God to send a Messiah, a Savior, who would care for his people. We need to remember that while a message, the message is to the church in the context of the book of Revelation, that's the frame around the big picture of God glorifying Christ, God had, in fact, been speaking to his people for many millennia to and through and for his people Israel. For this reason, Paul describes the church like a branch grafted into Israel, the tree, the vine, receiving all the blessings and the promises of God through, the, through Israel's Messiah. The church is, in fact, one new humanity, Paul writes in Ephesians, created out of two groups, Jews and Gentiles, brought together through faith in Jesus Christ, the church is that union of all ethnicities, most broadly, Jews and 
all the Gentile ethnicities. It's the place, the gathering place of all people who are God's. Let's look at John's response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, the second time he's told John to write. Write what you've seen, what's now and will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John's response to seeing Jesus in his glorified state is fairly dramatic. He falls at his feet as if he were dead. His response, though, is par for the course. A similar response was had by Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. All did much the same as they received a a vision of God. When sinful humanity sees God more clearly, it's easy to be overwhelmed by his beauty, his power. Isaiah cried out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I'm among a people of unclean lips. And then God cares for him in his sinfulness. The more we see God clearly, the more we're aware of our sinfulness. Let me say that again. The more we see God clearly, the more we're aware of his holiness, our sinfulness, and it's there that we can meet the grace of God. More important than John's response to what he sees, his falling down, is Jesus' care of John. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. John fell at the feet of the glorified Savior. Jesus reaches down and comforts him in his terrified state. As sinful humans, it can be terrifying to see God. Some of us here this morning may be feeling that. Keenly aware of our sinfulness, you may be moved to tears in the service. You may be reminded of shame, flax, sinful, guilt-ridden acts. You may feel, while here, a compulsion to leave, not uncommon. Run away, hide. Perhaps this morning you've already decided you'll not be coming back. Too intimate. They require too much vulnerability at that church. Jesus' words to John are his words to us. Do not be afraid. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we see our sinfulness for what it really is. Do not be afraid. Why? Why shouldn't we be afraid? Why should we return to a situation that's overwhelming to us at times? Because of who Jesus is. He's the first and the last. He's the living one. Who was dead from his crucifixion on the cross for our sins, but now he is alive forevermore. He lives to make intercession for us. He holds the keys to our freedom. He holds the keys to death and Hades, literally the grave, which our sin would bring us down to if we didn't look to him for hope. 
I'm sure that someone needs to hear this morning this message of do not be afraid because of who Jesus is. Do not be afraid, not because of who you are, suburbanites, highly credentialed, highly competent, but because of who Jesus is. You may be going through something terrible. You may be on Patmos, rejected, abandoned. You may feel attacked. You may have done something terrible. Jesus says, do not be afraid. He holds the future in his hands. He's the first and the last. Do not be afraid of death, struggling with illness, or feeling weak because he's the living one here among us this morning. Do not be afraid of suffering, struggling, because he died, and now he's raised to life to provide our forgiveness. And look at where Jesus is standing. John says he's standing among the lampstands. The lampstand or menorah, uh, was a fixture in both the wilderness tabernacle and the temple. We have a picture of it here for you. Imagine a a life-sized, right, candle, abra. It became, it was the symbol of God's presence, his light, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. It was in the temple, in the tabernacle, a symbol of his presence, but it also became a symbol of Israel itself, a light among the nations, using this particular symbol for the churches reminds us that the church stands as a light in the world. The church is the lampstand. Paul calls it the pillar and foundation of truth in the world. What do we believe is going on here? Jesus is standing among the church. Jesus' message. And he won't be done with his message uh, until the end of chapter 3. And he's going to address these seven churches very uh, particularly, and he has a double-edged sword in his mouth when he does it. Jesus is among his church. And while he has things to say to us about our sinfulness, he also calls us to him. He's here to minister to us in his grace. Do not be afraid. We're a gathering of sinners And I realize it's popular to take shots at the church today. Whole podcasts are dedicated to rehearsing the failures of the church. Books are written, read two of them this summer. The church is a gathering of sinners. The longer you're here, the higher the probability that you will sin against somebody and be sinned against by somebody. We are both victims and victimizers. Do not be afraid. The one who is first and last is among us. The one who has been raised from the grave is among us. The one who holds the keys to our escaping death and the grave is among us. Jesus is here. His presence is with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Why? Verse 5, chapter 1, because he loves us. Why? Because he's died for us. Verse 5, he's been raised. He sacrificed for us. He's freed us from our sins. Verse 5 of chapter 1, he's made us a kingdom and a priesthood. 
given this, I want to invite you not to back away from the church and its, its imperfections, but to engage in the church. Over the summer, the staff here at Glowing Bible Church launched a vision called the 111 vision. I've heard from many of you that you found it compelling. We're asking for three hours a week of investment in the church. One plus one plus one is three. We're asking for one hour of worship a week, one hour of service a week, one hour dedicated to growth a week. That is fellowship. One hour in public worship, one hour in service where you're serving, and one hour of fellowship where you're sharing life with somebody. Small group, women's Bible study, men's Bible study. You can learn more about this uh, on the website. It's in the bulletin that you received today. You can grab a copy of the bulletin if you didn't on your way out. We want to close by singing again together this morning, confessing that Christ is Lord. He's raised. He's here for us. We want to drive a stake in the ground that this is a supernatural gathering, that although we're waiting, right? John was on Patmos. The Spirit is among us. Would you stand with me and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for the ministry of your word to John. We thank you for John's faithfulness to write it down. We thank you that you're still among us. Father, open our minds and hearts to the truth that your son's raised. You're bringing glory to him in the church. Care for us now. Many of us have been hurt by the church. Many of us wonder where we fit in the church. Many of us are struggling with fears. I pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord. Have mercy on us. Minister to us now your grace. Reach down and touch us just as you did, John. In Jesus' name, amen.